Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My guests are Ian Croft, Director of Business Consulting at GP Strategies, and Paul Barnes, a Principal Consultant with GP Strategies. Ian, Paul, thanks for your time. Great to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, so we're talking today about coronavirus. And, you know, as we all know, the spread of coronavirus in China and around the world is, first and foremost, a human tragedy that's affecting tens of thousands of people all around the world. And it's also disrupted global supply chains and caused chaos in stock markets, right? Now, we've been hearing about how this is due in large part to globalization and to the globalized nature of the economy. So first, let's quickly define that term, the globalized economy, and then discuss why a globalized economy is especially vulnerable to disruptions like what we're experiencing now. So Ian, why don't you kick things off? Great. Thanks, Jeremy. And first off, as you say, this is this is a global tragedy. There are, you know, ninety thousand plus cases now and you know, people's lives have been severely affected by this, so our our thoughts are with them. Global economy is probably best to describe using a couple of examples. And you know, most of us drive cars or have access to cars. Probably the most complex supply chain, the result of the most complex supply chain in the world is the car that you drive. There are parts from all over the world in that car. And as we found out um, in with the America trade talks, the US trade talks with Mexico, sometimes a single component can transfer over the, the US-Mexico border three or four times in its total production phase before it becomes the part that then gets bolted into, into the car. Likewise, fast fashion, anybody who buys clothes in some of the high street chains, you'll have noticed where they're manufactured, be that Vietnam, uh, Sri Lanka, or Mauritius, or, or wherever. The supply chain for these fast fashion brands and, and high street stores is spread all over the world. That's what we mean by a globalized economy. It's no longer domestically produced and domestically sold. It's globally produced and, uh, and sold wherever it can be sold. Yeah. So, Paul, please jump in. Yeah, I think the other the other aspect to consider is, is why why it is why it exists. I mean, it's a global economy has actually been around a very long time. We've got plenty of examples from previous empires, you know, such as the Roman Empire, where the friction of distance was reduced, and now we've seen that you know accelerate since the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution. And as technology, you know, the last sort of 10, 20 years as it has increased, we've seen the up the increasing scale of this moving to a place now where we don't actually need to be physically present and we can ship things rapidly. And I think the interesting bit for me is that we almost exist, but because no one holds any stock anymore, we almost exist on this knife edge where if, if a small part in this chain starts to be affected, albeit however small, such as one simple O-ring, we start to see huge knock-on effects. So I do a lot of work with teams and organizations, and, and you know we, we talk a lot about the inter- interconnectedness, interdependencies of a team and organization. And what we're seeing now is interconnectedness and interdependencies affected on a global scale. And obviously, the, there's a lot of news in the press about you know various automotive manufacturers having to put a stop on their on their production lines or or, or use alternative means of shipping goods, you know, such as using suitcases to move key parts around the world because their existing methods have um, have not been possible recently. Okay, right. And so one thing I'm hearing you guys say is a globalized economy 
has a lot of benefits, right? It can be quite powerful in terms of bringing down prices and, and being able to source goods from all over the world instead of having to create everything yourself, right, within one locality. But the globalized economy is also vulnerable in particular ways to something like a coronavirus or other crises. Let's drill down on that a little bit more. What are some specific examples that we're seeing now of the ways that supply chains are being disrupted? I'll take that one if if I may. And, sure. and you know, to build on Paul's example of you know the, the car manufacturers, they've become absolute masters of this. I mean, Toyota brought in the just-in-time you know stocking methods of you know making sure your inventory turned up exactly when you needed it. And I know that other auto manufacturers have adopted this to the extent that you know if if a supplier was responsible for a production line being stopped in normal circumstances there would be enormous penalties paid by that supplier for bringing the production line to a standstill so that's where we are now and you know why is that vulnerable because as paul says we're on a knife edge here and if you are carrying minimal resources at your factory because that's the way you want to keep inventory down you want to keep stock down you want to keep less money tied up in the in the supply chain once that is disrupted, that disruption surfaces very, very quickly. And um, we're starting to see that with in it's the, the closer geographically the producer is to where the, the parts are being produced, that the sooner that is going to come through. And a certain, you know, the South Korean car manufacturer that is already experiencing supply chain issues, those that are based further away from China, are you know because that time to get to the supply to the production site is longer that those disruptions haven't shown up yet but we're starting to see those ripples and from information I was reviewing yesterday we're looking to the middle of middle to end of March to see some of the supply chain disruptions in the automotive industry for more European and North American based production and um, other production sites around the world. Yeah. So Paul, are there certain sectors that are being affected more than others in terms of the supply chain at the moment? Yeah, I think there are. I, I did a quick ring round of, of clients the last couple of days in various industries. And I think for me, the coronavirus is a great example of a labor crisis. That's what's affecting it. Traditionally, a lot of the, the risk models, and particularly on the, on the manufacturing side, have, have looked at natural disasters and geopolitical risk. So you need good examples of the tsunami uh, in 2011, affecting Toyota particularly. You've got our examples like the volcano in Iceland uh, and, and other previous you know, SARS and MERS viruses. I don't think people were expecting this, although, although it was predictable as far as the expert. I don't think people were predicting the impact on labor as much as this has been or could be recognizing that we might not be in, the, in it, this could get worse in the foreseeable future. So I think it's, it's interesting looking at China for me, and I think actually China wasn't a bad place for it to start. China scores quite highly on various risk scales in terms of how they've been able to, to manage the crisis. So although if you have a lot of parts or materials coming from China right now, and that's been affected, China could actually get on top of this quite quickly compared to some other countries who are less prepared for this. You know, it'd be, it will be interesting to see how how Italy and some of the European countries deal with this, because on the Global Health Score Index, which rates various risks, some of the European countries don't come out as well as they could and are coming out quite unprepared for a virus such as COVID-19. 
And to build on Paul's point, it's I was listening to something this morning, and they were uh, certain suppliers in China were saying that they were running for Apple suppliers, you know, components to Apple. They were saying that they were, had the ability to run at fifty percent production for the remainder of March, but by the end of March they would be back up to one hundred percent production. So their ability to recover, and I think the other factor is, you know, yes, this started in China, but you know, and comparing it to SARS. China is so much it has so much a large so much larger percentage of the world GDP now it yeah. was around 4% when uh, during the SARS epidemic now their contribution is 16% of world GDP so they have a bigger slice of the cake so the disruption is much more noticeable mm, okay so on the one hand as Paul was saying China is at least historically pretty good at reacting to this kind of situation. But on the other hand, their economy is so consequential in a globalized world that it can have a, a larger effect, even if they are doing a good job at dealing with yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump. I think it's if we look at freedoms and constraints, you know, China has probably has more freedoms than a lot of Western countries in terms of the government's ability to do things and get things done. You know, we've seen hospitals built in six days. I don't think that would be possible. So, and one of the reasons for that is if we look at the forces that drive things, the impact on the global economy is actually going to see an increase in international forces where, where nations are going to have to combine to deal with this crisis because it affects everyone. And I think that's the power of what China was able to do. They were able to mobilize very quickly against the, the situation. Arguably, we could say more quickly, but I, I think they'll actually, it will, when the history books come out, they'll have been seen to have done a, an effective job given the number of people in the country and given the speed at which they got on top of this. So I think for me, it's in terms of what people can actually do about this, and we'll come on to that later on, but it's, it's focusing on what we can do versus what we can't do. And it's, it's a little bit of a mindset shift there. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into that because all kinds of companies all around the world are being affected by this right now, day by day. So what can companies do right now to mitigate supply chain issues that are related to the coronavirus? That's part one. And part two, what can companies do in the long term to prepare the next time a crisis hits? Because that will eventually happen at some point. I think in the short term, there's not a lot a company can do about its global supply chain in the short term. If we're talking short term, you know, next six six weeks to two months, the immediate thing they can do, obviously, talk to their suppliers, make sure that they are aware of what measures their suppliers are taking and how big this is, big of disruption this is going to be. The other thing that any good, well-run company will have is a, a disaster mitigation plan. They should be they should be looking at that because it's one thing having it, it's another thing being aware of it, but it's another thing where everybody being understanding what they've got to do and so that this becomes an agile execution of the disaster recovery plan rather than somebody looking at it, not fully understanding it, not understanding their role within it. And it's that the ability to be agile and change quickly, change direction, have good communication and have somebody, you know, have a team that is accountable for the success or otherwise of the disaster mitigation plan so that they are, people know what they've got to do and are able to do it quickly and with confidence. We don't want people dithering. You know, this is the commercial equivalent of people not knowing where the fire escapes are or not knowing where the exits are on, on an aircraft and that delaying the people that uh, want to want to evacuate the building. If we don't have smooth and agile execution on this, it is going to cause more and more problems. And that, you know, that would be the short term sort of 
message that I would be saying to companies, make sure you know who is going to do what. And they're dealing with that with confidence when you, you look at that disaster recovery plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul, I would assume that you'd basically agree with that. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. I think sometimes it's instructive to look at what you shouldn't do. So the worst case for me in terms of a recipe for how not to, to lead in this crisis would be to one, don't do anything, two, fail to communicate, and three, fail to act. So if we, so if we then flip that around, you know, what does good leadership look like in this crisis? One, one example I give you from some of my colleagues who worked with uh, a, a Japanese retailer, Lawson, when the tsunami hit, they were about to run a new, new initiative on strategy and, and around execution. And your first thought might be, okay, well, there's a tsunami hit. We're going to cancel that. But actually, we took the opposite approach. The individual concern, our, our, our Japanese operative, he went in and he worked with the CEO to maintain focus on the mission, which didn't change. But what can we do now to make sure we can reassure customers? There was, I think, 50 stores affected. So what can we do now to put in place um, stores where people need them, make sure people get fed. So the mission stayed the same in a, in a sense, but the, some of the priorities changed and the priority became making sure people had access to food, making sure, you know, customers were reassured, staff were reassured. And I think that's useful. And I think there are, there's always things you can do. Uh, I was talking to clients this morning about putting in place some policies around reducing the risk when people come to work, having a skeleton staff, because if we all suddenly stay at home, then we're also going to run out of food fairly shortly. And I think in, with the leadership aspect in mind, I, I saw a nice, being British as well, I, I'm going to mention the Queen, but I saw a nice example of the Queen still yesterday, shaking people's hands, pinning medals on people. Yes, she was wearing a pair of gloves, but she was still out there. And I think it's important that we continue to role model with an ethical standpoint in mind of making sure we don't put any risk to our employees, that we still continue to keep working and do what we can with the current operating environment. Yeah. Now, part of the challenge with dealing with crises is that you can't predict when they're going to hit or what form exactly they're going to take. And I think this coronavirus is a really good example. So thinking long term, what are some basic steps that companies can put in place to be as prepared as they can for whatever may come their way? It's a great question. I'll jump on this quickly. I think that some of my colleagues and the, the background of the entity I work within within GP Strategies has some military philosophy at, at its base. And so lessons from the battlefield, you can't control what you're going to face. Uh, what you can do is control your response to things you can reasonably predict happening, actions on, if you will. So the planning can start now. What would happen if a certain percentage of our workforce get affected? What would happen if schools start to shut in the area that we operate in? Let's also look at the strengths that we have in the global economy. Are there markets and production areas that aren't going to be affected? Countries which are both very well prepared for this and are probably likely to be least impacted. Could we go and source materials from there? There might be a short-term increased cost, but that would be worth it to keep the line going. So I think there's always things you can do. It's about getting the right people in the room, asking the right questions and starting to build plans against those questions. Yeah. And I think it's the a sensible, mature and honest review of how your organization, one's organization responded to this crisis. And, you know, as Paul says, you, know, you can't plan for the battlefield. You can't plan for a disaster. You can be prepared to a certain degree. And it's having that post-crisis meeting to say, what could we have done better? What should we do better? And how are we going to do better next time? And you know, we, we do have a, within GP, we have an entity that does disaster preparedness and is, um, I'm sure, working with people now with this COVID-19 and coronavirus outbreak. And uh, they, they are a specialist entity within GP. So, you know, that you can be prepared, but it's being ruthlessly analytical 
to say what honestly what could we have done better what are we going to do better next time and all that sits within the culture and values of your organization in order for this to all work you've got to operate and be true to your culture and values if your disaster recovery plan is built on a set of values that the company just doesn't possess it's not going to work well so how well disaster recovery plan does it look good on paper but it does it actually reflect the reality of the environment and the culture that is is prevalent in the organization right great point okay so paul let's start with you what are the two or three main points you want listeners to take away from this podcast I think it's it's what I mentioned before, this lead, communicate, act, don't do nothing. Uh, what can you be doing? Role model the leadership you want to see in your organization and then start to plan against it. For example, if you're going to go to, if, if it's potential that you might have to reduce the number of people turning up to work, what are those people going to be doing when they're at home? Can we plan for that? If it's possible that some people are going to have to self-isolate and go into a self-imposed quarantine, that's potentially going to be quite, it's going to affect people. I think we're going to see some of the psychological issues coming out if you're going to have to stay at home for two weeks so can we be looking after our, our staff in, in those in those areas could we have buddy systems so to make sure that we have a, a positive response to this so essentially own the narrative i think there's a real danger that the the gossip network is going to kick in here so the communication side is really important too making sure we're, we're staying fact-based we're, we're maintaining trust with the organization by keeping them informed and by being proactive we're not going to wait for other entities to take the decision be decisive based on what you know, because it's important that staff feel reassured in this as well. So I think that that's going to be the, the, the difference I see that whilst we try and maintain our, our mission in, in a business sense, the safety and security and positivity of our staff needs to be a high priority as well. Right. And Ian, what are your main takeaways? Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, this is, as we've said so many times, a human crisis. People are going to be scared. They're going to be frightened. Because, and to Paul's point, if we don't give solid, you know, display solid leadership around a set of core values, people will reach the wrong conclusions. They will, they will make up information to fill that communication gap. And so it is being honest, leading the right way, and making sure that, you know, as if we are asking people to adopt different behaviors. There are support mechanisms out there. Amazon was reporting this morning that people are frightened to go to their food stores and buy food. So they're ordering online and their delivery mechanism is not keeping up with it. That's a change of behavior. If people are terrified to go to the, to the grocery store, they're probably not going to go to the office either or not willingly go to the office. You now have somebody who's frightened to go to the office, sitting at home, maybe not used to working remotely as some of us are. And that can get very lonely very quickly. So what is the what is the buddying system? What are the touch points so that people still feel connected to the organization and still feel they are producing meaningful work to stop them dwelling on the potentially scary situation that they think they find themselves in? Okay. Well, Ian, Paul, thank you both very much for sharing your insights. Well, thank you. Thank you. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.